There's one magical, haunted evening each year when all the scary creatures come out to prowl through every neighborhood. But here's the scariest monster of all. Hi, I'm Paul Lind. <laughs> well, somebody had to be. Halloween can be scarier for parents than youngsters. After all, they're worried about their little ghosts and goblins who are out trick-or-treating. So here are a few safety tips from Punchy, the spokesperson for Hawaiian Punch Fruit Punch. Tell your children to stay in the neighborhood and to trick-or-treat in groups. Younger children should always be accompanied by a responsible adult. Best idea of all, why not have a Halloween party at home? A Halloween party for the neighborhood gives everyone a, a chance to dress up and play games. Yes, remember, Halloween needn't be scary to be fun. you see what I see? That robot is Jeremy in his costume. Oh, Jessica, it's you. How do you like my costume? You look great. Things don't look very good at all. If Jeremy went out like that, he might fall down just anywhere and probably everywhere. Sidewalks hurt you when you fall on them, and so do streets. And streets are especially dangerous to fall down on. McGruff, the crime dog here. It's Halloween and, well, hello. Trick or treat! Hey, you're a big cat. Wonderful, aren't they? If only we grown-ups could preserve their capacity for simple joys and simple belief. I see you practice white magic as well as black. Oh, yes. I don't think it'll be too amusing for the youngsters if I conjured up a demon from hell for them. Or for myself, for that matter. There really is a phantom. He was just in my shower. He threatened my life! He said his music is just for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else who tries... Does. A monster needs an ugly face, but does it have to be a mask? Like one that on a lonesome road doth walk in fear and dread, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. <laughs> I hope you don't read poems like that to your kindergarten class. When it's important that a child learns something, I use the most direct means available. Can't you feel the vibes in your own house? Bad sport, real bad. I mean, the karma's so thick around here, you need an aqualung to breathe. I know what it is. Oh, you do, huh? Yeah, you want to know what it is? Why don't you tell me what it is? Speed, that's what it is. Speed? Yeah. What do you know about it? You just pass the stuff out. I take it. I know drug reel from real real. Files. It's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 250 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, not only is it the Halloween episode, but it's also the disappointment episode of the American. The, 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 the,
I don't even know what I'm doing. All right, because not only is it the Halloween episode, but it is also the disappointment episode of the SLS cast. Because it turns out that uh, back in 1767, America's first opera, The Disappointment, has a conjurer that fools four Pennsylvania colony folks by convincing them he's got a magic divining rod cut on All Hallows' Eve at 12 o'clock at night with my back to the moon that will lead all of these people to pirate's treasure. And what does that have to do with anything? Well, it's all about Halloween. And 1767 was 250 years ago. That's right. I, too, can reach way back with the obscure references for our episode numbers now. And with that wonderful way, long way down knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. And was that, did I hear you correctly, that was called a divining rod? Yes, a magic divining rod. That was cut on All Hallows' Eve at 12 o'clock at night. Is that, is that what the pedophile preachers call their, their divining penis? A magical divining rod? <laughs> Speaking of reaching way out there for references. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm a little... I, I need to get back in this groove. It's been many, many moons since we recorded classic SLS cast, and... One could say it's even been... Many, many Halloweens since we've recorded the SLS cast. I know I've been busy editing and putting together the areas of continuity stuff, and I know you've been busy with school. How is your school work going? I know you were balls deep in that Spanish class that you were so looking forward to taking. Oh, yes. Yes, I am. Uh, well, actually, it's interesting that you should bring up school and how busy I am. Um, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to our resident Halloween special guest here. Uh, excuse me, just one moment here. Hello there, Tim. Hello there, Satan. Yes, um, it, it turns out that, um, it is very good that I have come, uh, in this particular time, because, as it turns out, but before you even called this evening, Matt had actually contacted me, uh, we're working out a deal where he can sell me his soul for some decent grades this semester, because he's just, he's just way, way too overwhelmed with everything that's going on. Currently, I have him on a return offer. I'm, I'm currently offering him three A's and a B, and he, of course, will get to give me his soul. He would like me to sweeten the deal with some Reese's Pieces, but damn it, I love them more than he does, and I'm really just not willing to give them up for that much. So perhaps maybe I can trick him by getting him to, uh, perhaps, perhaps give me a blowjob, and I'll just shoot 
Reese's Pieces all over his face or something. I don't know yet, but um, I'm, I'm working on this. We're going back and forth, so anything that you can uh, use to sweeten the deal so that I can get his soul a little bit faster, because quite frankly, you know, we're getting close to Halloween now, and, and, and I'm really, really busy. This is kind of like my version of Christmas, and unfortunately, I, I it just doesn't behoove me to slow down time like Santa does, because I want everyone to, you know, really be in their torment and their torture of, of eternity and if I just freeze time then they're kind of frozen too because believe it or not in hell and in the eternal pathos and everything that is hell if you stop time you stop time there too it's 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 really confusing these aren't the rules but hey this is what happens when you have the power to have you know Reese's peanut butter flavored jizz for things like souls for college grades is matthew putting up much of a fight about you mutilating his face with reese's pieces jizz or or is he like bargaining is he openly bargaining because he is in tune with the idea of you reese's pieces pizzazzing all over his i personally just think that the grades should speak for themselves i i would think that it would be good that he would have all of these grades, and then perhaps you would get a good job or something like that. I mean, it doesn't really matter what's another five or ten. He's, you know, he's not a very healthy guy. So I figure, uh, you know, maybe I should just give him the Reese's Pieces because then I'll get his soul even sooner. Hmm. You're you're very good at this, Tim. Thank you very much. Don't tell Matt, though, that you're trying to speed his demise. You might not like that very much. I, I like to use... Reese's Pieces? You like to use just flavored Reese's Pieces, too? I like to take this time, because I only get you to like speak to with it, you. You I I like, like to, to move it, move, move it. it, as I'm not getting face jokes. I guess, these, I guess by... his bad dad jokes are rubbing off on me. I'm sorry about that. Go ahead. <laughs> Matt's bad dad jokes? Definitely not yes, mine. Yes, okay. yes, yes. I mean, you know, we wouldn't want to deal with the G guy upstairs. He's like the ultimate dad, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, technically he is, right? Because, I mean, he is the father. Well, I mean, I don't believe no, this. No, no, I'm, I am the father. You see, I'm the father of lies. I am the father of demons. And I am the father of... Well, I guess maybe not the father. I guess you could just call me the inventor of Reese's peanut butter flavored jizz. But um, anyway. Well, why don't you start incorporating that? into the Halloween folklore then? Because I'm sure you have a hand in some way in the whole lore, lore of Halloween, right? I gotta be honest with you. Ever ever since 1996, when David Bowie said that the internet was going to be like the next big thing and that it was unstoppable and people would be able to do and say everything, you know, he was right. He was right. And the internet's kind of gotten away from me now, so um, it's just too hard to incorporate these things. The internet's just going to do what it's going to do. And, and um, those are... Those those are the ways that, uh, you know, it's just the way the cookie kingdom crumbles, I suppose. But I understand you have questions for me, though. That, uh, what, what kind of questions do you have for me this year? Well, as I am trying to formulate what those questions were, why not, why not only, <laughs> why not only allow the parents to worry about their children eating razor blades eating the razor blades that may or may not be in their candy but why not make those parents now have to worry about their children eating Reese's pieces filled with satan jizz 
The biggest problem is, is that all of that razor blade stuff was simply urban legend. Um, granted it was started by me so that I could make sure that children would be terrified. But, um, the, the idea would be to get it to go beyond urban legend status. And quite frankly, even with my libido, um, I just don't have time to go around and, and jizz all over the place, Reese's Pieces, and, uh, you know, to try and really get them into the population that way. But, uh, I'm sure that someone somewhere is sick enough and maybe they'll, maybe they'll take it upon themselves. Uh, you know, they'll pray to me or something and then I can bestow upon them the powers to go to the Reese's peanut butter factory and just start masturbating furiously. Um, you know, in August, really. Because these things take time, you know. They send the candy out so far ahead. It's ridiculous. But, okay, so the questions I have for you, Satan. I I was recently in Hawaii, and one of the things I did on the island... You're welcome for making it back, by the way. I I seriously thought about letting your plane crash or something, but, you know, I decided I decided my, my yearly conversation with you was a little more important, so uh, you're welcome <laughs> for living. Why, thank you, thank it. you. I was wondering no why problem. I got put on the shittiest fucking plane possible coming well back it was from- either that or it was either that or or let you relive the horror of having the urine incidents with the homeless people when you got back so i just figured maybe a craptastic flight would be good enough yeah that, that works that works one thing i did in hawaii is i went to a volcano i saw lava flowing into the ocean into the pacific ocean there at uh at a sure there at place, yes. volcanoes national park but I ended up taking a nice little detour to actually seeing lava flow, not from afar, but from three feet away. It is very hot. Very, very hot. I wanted to ask you, since some consider, not everybody does, but some consider volcanoes to be a portal to hell, are there any other things that you consider to be portals to hell? I mean, I, I guess now we might all consider Reese's Pieces to be Certainly, yes. Uh, absolutely. That is entirely possible. And, and as we have established before, um, uh, Matt's butthole is a portal to hell. Um, that, that is naturally one of the hidden ones. Um, and, and then I suppose um, if people really, really want to uh, find the... the quickest and fastest way to hell um they they certainly just could go to the la brea tar pits um that's the it's the sticky way in but um you know we we actually give you like a 1000 year credit if you come through there because it's just so difficult to get down to the bottom of those tar pits like that but if you do manage it then uh we give you like a 1000 year credit where you just where you can just kind of you know say i'm really kind of done with the torture for a moment and then we'll give you a little bit of a break and you know you can really make a thousand years stretch for quite a while over eternity uh, you know you don't think about that but a 10 minute break here and there just where you know we're, we're not shoving lightning hot lava hot pokers up your ass um you know much like Matt's butthole. These are good things. Yes, so for two years now, Matt's butthole has become the center as to why you are here. Now, very much like the movie starring Tommy Lee Jones, Volcano, which I have no idea if you had a hand or not in making that movie the way, whether that's good or bad, I will let listeners out there decide upon that. But how how likely is it that a volcano could form and erupt beneath the La Brea tar pits. It's really uh, quite uh, 
is really, really very low possibility. Uh, mainly because I have the wonderful super volcano that I'm just waiting to have go off in Yellowstone. Um, that's, that, that's gonna be a great way to just kind of destroy the whole world all at once. You know, I'm, I'm waiting from the call from the man up. I mean, I'm waiting until I decide. I decide. No, no, no one else tells me what to do. I'll decide when to, you know, blow up the Yellowstone. Uh, thing. So, we don't have to worry about any super volcanoes under LA. Not to mention, I mean, you know, I, I swear people don't even understand lava. It's going to melt the concrete. So, how is it going to superheat and create a tunnel which would go straight through the sewer systems and the subway systems? It wouldn't. Fascinating, fascinating conversation we're, we're having here. Uh, and, and lastly, because I know we're running a little bit over, I, I have a list here, uh, and it's an IMDb list, believe it or not, but it is called Satan's Movie Collection, uh, and it does have a period at the end of it. So I, by the title of this list, I get the feeling that this list you actually created in March 6th of 2011 is the definitive list of your movie collection. Uh, now, before I, I read some of these off, can you confirm whether or not you are a Spicer? A spi- a sp- a, it's spelled A-P-S-C. Ass Spicer? Yeah, um, no, that, that's, uh, that's, my, that's Saddam's code name. Um, <laughs> Top 15 here. Number one, you have the classic uh, The Exorcist. Next up is Alucarda. Angel Heart, which I thought was very interesting. That's the Mickey Rourke, Robert De Niro, and uh, Lisa Bonet movie from 1987. The Devils from 1971. Uh, the Great Vanessa Redgrave and Oliver Reed. Uh, Ken Russell directed film. Number five, The Omen. Then you have Rosemary's Baby, number six. The Exorcism of Emily Rose, number seven. Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny, number eight. The Beyond, number nine. The House by the Cemetery, number ten. City of the Living Dead, number eleven. Number twelve, Two, The Devil, A Daughter, thirteen. Dawn of the Dead, fourteen. Drag Me to Hell, fifteen. House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, I said I was going to stop at fifteen, but number sixteen is The Evil Dead. Number seventeen is Time Bandits. 18, Satan's School for Girls. 19, Eddie Murphy's The Golden Child. And number 20, The Sentinel. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you, Satan, why is Poltergeist not on this list, not on this top 20 well, list? For, and why is well, Time Bandits number 17? I, I will tell you, for starters, that that truly is not my list. I have no idea who this is that would represent me in such a an egregious way. No, I I my list of horror movies would be things uh, like like The Golden Child for sure. Uh, not because it's scary, but because it's torture and and it's just horrible. Uh, movies like The Problem Child, Time Bandits could be on there too if you really don't like Terry Gilliam. Uh, like Matt, see, I plan on torturing Matt with Terry Gilliam movies, um, you know, and just kind of tease. Uh, I'll tease that one with Robin Williams and, and then I'll just not actually show it and then just switch it over back to Time Bandits again. But. Oh, Fisher King? Yes, Fisher King. Uh, because you see, uh, Robin Williams plays like the moon god guy thing in the Time Bandits. So, you know, there's, there's always that. And, um, 
Uh, so I can pretend like it's going to be Fisher King, but it's not. But no, I, I would, my, my list of horror movies is all about torture. So they'd just be terrible, terrible movies that I would make you watch over and over again. Uh, stay tuned and, um, and, well, stay tuned isn't exactly because it's terrible. It's just because it's Jeffrey Wright and we all know how he turned out. And then, you know, we have like, you know, Problem Child and things like that. Just, just absolutely terrible, terrible movies that I can torture you with. The, the, the very idea would be horror for you to be having to watch them. I'm not sure. I, it doesn't seem to me like this person really understands how to make a good list of movies that I would approve of. And while I have Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny staring at me, what do you think of your representation within that film? I suppose as far as it goes, it's not too bad. I thought that it was more fun uh, when they just did the actual music video for Tribute. I thought that was a little bit better. But um, at the end of the day, I mean, if you're just not going to go Tim Curry and Legend, then, you know, why why bother to show up at all? Satan, I will say that... This has been a very interesting one-on-one discussion. I feel like I could write your memoirs. Well, I guess, wait, wait, can I write your memoirs or can you write, you only write? Well, as long, I mean, you, you, you feel free to write your memoirs as you want, but if you're going to have the memoirs focused around our time together, then I, I would just have to ask that you name it, you know, Matt's assholes, uh, jizz flavored Reese's pieces and me. That, that would be the, title i think you should use sounds like a plan are there any last impressions you would like to impose on our faithful listeners before you have to crawl up that asshole i would just say love peace and chicken grease peace out well that was weird holy crap i suppose he came did did he did he come uh you know he did kind of tastes like Reese's Pieces in here. Well, that that is a story we might have to save for uh, next year's Halloween episode because we are running out of time, believe it or not. Oh, that's terrible. That's just terrible. But uh, I suppose if we are running out of time, then we need to move the show along. And if that's the case, we need to do some news or some news. Before we even do news, we got to do the email, right? Ooh, yeah. Check that email. Check that mail sack. Check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. Oh, no. We suck again. That's right, and just in time for Halloween, after a, such a after such a long repast, um, yeah, you got to hear the castration sounds, which I guess is fitting for Halloween. So no email for us, sad face. Um, so we really do want to get those emails though, so please send us an email to the show at slscast.com. Uh, we did have lots more followers on Twitter and even new Podbean followers, so thank you so very much for picking us up on the follow train there. If you would like to follow us on Twitter, we would love to have you do so. Do that by following us at the SLScast. And are we going to do some news or what? Let's mosey on over to your news. Then here we go, folks. It's the news. All right, and 
first up from me, from HollywoodReporter.com by way of Eric Gardner. Hollywood confronts a copyright argument with potential for mass disruption. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it, uh, let's see here. It says that who really owns the CG characters in blockbuster films like Avengers and Night at the Museum? On Monday, a judge was told it's not the studios. Yes, the article begins. Are some of Hollywood's biggest movies from the past decade, Guardians of the Galaxies, Avengers, Age of Ultron, Deadpool, and Night at the Museum, among others, all copyright infringements because they were allegedly created with stolen technology? The question seems outlandish, and yet that's exactly what a California federal judge was told in a case that can't be shrugged off as as a crank, even if it's now treading on some fantastic territory, including a scholar's search for hidden codes in the Hebrew Bible. Yes, you heard that right, folks. Turns out that uh, Reardon LLC is the plaintiff. The firm was founded by Silicon Valley entrepreneur Steve Perlman, who claims to own software called MOVA, M-O-V-A, which captures facial expressions to create photorealistic computer graphic computer graphic effects. Reardon also alleges its technology was stolen by a former colleague before eventually landing in the hands of a Chinese firm. As the FBI investigated economic espionage, Reardon waged litigation with this Chinese company and won an injunction. Now Reardon is suing the customers of the stolen technology, Disney, Fox, and Paramount, who find their blockbusters the subject of bold intellectual property claims. Oh my goodness, yes. So, in response to the lawsuit, the, the studios have contended that the copyright, trademark, and percent, and, I'm sorry, and patent claims fail as a matter of law. The story, however, um, for this particular piece, uh, focuses only on the mind-blowing copyright arguments. Basically, it comes down to this. At this stage of the dispute, the studios cannot dispute the truth of the allegations. Not only did they use stolen technology, they did so knowingly. But Disney, Fox, and Paramount ask, so what? Whatever shows up on screen is primarily the product of human input, namely film direction and an actor's performance. The technology company simply can't own the output. Uh, and they actually are using a Supreme Court case to bolster their argument. Problem is, the Supreme Court case is from 1884. <clears throat> um, Reardon, Reardon basically says, that um so so Reardon's Reardon's saying, look, you literally cannot get the performances you're getting, the characters you're creating, without this technology. It's not the fact that your your guy is speaking or your your character is speaking, be it a man or a woman who's behind the camera. That literally the way that the rig itself works means that the technology is doing the bulk of the work, okay? It's not like, for instance, using Word, where the software is there, but it's your thought, it's your intellectual property that you're just typing into a screen, right? You control all of that stuff. It's not like Adobe, necessarily, or Photoshop, 
where you're physically creating everything within the software. In in this particular uh, uh, stance, Reardon says that the technology itself is what's generating everything you're seeing and allowing the characters to actually be present at all, not the actors who are doing the work. It's not that they're not acting. It's that even with their acting, it's not enough. Of course, the studios are like, no, 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 hang on, come on. You, you know, these, these people are creating characters, they're doing all these performances, you know, they're making the facial expressions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it really just kind of comes down to how people are going to see it. The biggest thing, the biggest problem I have is that if they knowingly stole the technology, then they quite frankly get whatever, whatever's coming to them because they knowingly used stolen technology and that's setting a dangerous precedent and the biggest problem of all is if they actually lose people like Groot or um uh Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy will will literally be in the purview of this Reardon LLC plaintiff by by Drax do you mean Rocket Raccoon no, Drax the Destroyer. Oh, really? Yeah. Was he CGI? So, he was in CGI. What? I'm trying I think to... so. Maybe it's just Groot. Maybe it's Rocket Rock. I don't know. But, I'm, you know, just it's really kind of scary. All the CGI, a lot of the CGI characters and stuff. Basically, anything that was using the rig to help create them, to help create that stuff. This does not also include de-aging or creating young Leia, young Carrie Fisher in Star Wars, the Rogue One, right? Well, the de-aging, probably not. I'm not sure where the de-aging comes in. I do know that specifically in regards to aging, Benjamin Button is on the list of things that are apparently in trouble. So... Maybe it could actually go that far as well. Really? That's crazy. Whenever I think of whether it be like de-aging or creating a character, a younger version of a character by way of using a model like the general, the dead general in Rogue One or young Princess Leia or even, did you see Blade Runner 2049 yet? No. No? Okay. Then I'm not going to spoil that for you then. These other movies where they bring back other characters, younger characters, I guess, it's not relying on acting. It's relying on the technique in the software because you're recreating what a person looked like many years ago. And a lot of that performance is brought on by their visual appearance because everything else they're just recreating based on material that was already produced, you know, many years ago. Sure, but on the other side of that though, you wouldn't be able to have the ability to present them in the way you're trying to present them without using that technology. So, even though the likeness and the character are the same because, you know, for instance, Michael Douglas playing a younger version of Michael Douglas um in Ant-Man that would not be possible without the ability to use that technology in and of itself. So therefore, once again, it's the technology making this possible. So right. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I definitely agree with that. 
Yeah, the output or whatever. Again, that's where you kind of have to be careful because while I agree to a certain extent for sure that you, you know, it, you know, if, so if I create an app using my phone, does Samsung own the app? Right? I mean, I bought my phone. It's my phone. And so that's why had, had Disney, had Paramount, had Fox properly purchased this technology, licensing agreements and user agreements, all these kinds of things would go into the purchase of that stuff and its subsequent use stating that, hey, this is your gear, but whatever we produce with it is ours. Yeah. They're literally missing that key component. Um, I did, however, miss, uh, misspeak. I misread the, uh, they were just using the case of curious, of ben- the curious case of Benjamin Button as an example for CG characters. Um, that's not actually part of the suit in and of itself. So at any rate, yeah, I thought that was really kind of interesting. In some way, this reminds me of this movie called Battle Los Angeles that came out in 2009, I think, 2008 and 2009. A couple of guys that worked on the special effects of that movie used that software to create this other alien invasion special effects movie that came out a year later i think or 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 maybe even within a year so there was a big lawsuit about that and in fact i cannot remember whatever came out of that lawsuit so it'll be it would be very interesting to go back and look that up and see what came out of that because if it was just a settlement we very well might see that happen again here. But then again, those two guys or those guys who created that knockoff movie with or created that movie with the knockoff technology or with that stolen technology, I haven't heard of them ever since. Then again, Disney very well cannot be discredited or you cannot discredit Disney for taking this technology because, of course, they are Disney. And unfortunately, we live in a society where despite... All the badness that Disney has done will continue doing. We will all still go and see whatever Star Wars movie, whatever Marvel movie, Pixar movie that they're going to be coming out with next. I like these hot topic movie entertainment related cases. It definitely takes the heat away from, in my mind, from the whole Harvey Weinstein crap. (laughs) Yeah, there's lots of people who are... Uh, trying to get away from even uh, the Weinstein Company itself. There's um, like Paddington 2 is trying to get released from their contracts there. Um, who was it? Someone turned down their directorial debut. I can't remember who who it was. But I mean, it's just everybody's trying to, you know, it's like Weinstein Company's like, yo, we already got rid of this fool. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> so... Well, it's the brand, you know? Well, I, I mean, I feel, I know, but it's kind of like, we, we, we totally see, okay, look, there was a problem. It is a huge problem. And it, it would be one thing if they were trying to defend him, or if he was still on the payroll, or they were acting like nothing was going on. But they literally have done everything they possibly can, condemning the guy, firing the guy from his own fucking company. His own brother fucking fired him from his own company. So, I don't know what more that Weinstein Company can do to say, holy shit, people, we're sorry. So, um, and it's not like, it's not like anybody else, um, 
gets a pass here. Every it, It's rapidly apparent that everybody has known about this problem for 20 plus years at this point. So we n- no one in their right mind should get to say, well, I'm going to Paramount because by God, they sure as shit were being not. No, they knew it was a problem. They didn't say anything, you know, and I'm and say what you will about whether or not people like Gwyneth Paltrow or Courtney Love should have spoken up sooner or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know what? You're not them. It didn't happen to you. So you don't get to judge. Um, but at the same time, every, it's, it sure as shit seems like everybody's guilty, at least if not by association, then by doing nothing. So what, what kind of stance are you making by saying, ah, fuck TWC, I'm not going to go with them anymore? They've done as much as they can do. I mean, you don't think so. it's going to hurt the brand? Do you think people will still go and see Paddington 2, despite it being released or whatever? I, I honestly don't think... I mean, because you got to remember, by the time all these movies come out, how how long is it going to be before? I mean, Paddington 2 probably wouldn't come out till the end of next year. And let's face it, people have the attention span of a fucking gnat. What? Bill Cosby? Who? What? Yeah. It's really kind of sad in that regard. What do you think their new logo is going to be? Maybe get just get rid of Weinstein, the company. <laughs> <laughs> the really, really sorry company. I mean, I don't, I mean, honestly, I don't know. They, they literally might have to like f- completely rebrand as a different company entirely. But, uh, I mean, if nothing else, they could just fold Weinstein back into Miramax or whatever else. I mean, it wouldn't be like they couldn't do that. Um, or into one of its other subsidiaries and, and then just, you know, rise up from that. Sure. From that angle. Yeah. Cause they have, they had Miramax, they had Dimension Films, I think, which was their, uh, what they released all their horror movies via. Yes. Well, my last piece of news comes to us from the telegraph, 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 what the, from the telegraph.co.uk. And it comes to us by way of Hannah Furness. Well, Trump would call it the telegraph. Oh, well, well, there, there you go. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> you, you can see how much I follow that. Uh, it has become fashionable for actors not to learn their lines, Bill Nye complains. Yes, a new generation of actors are failing to learn their lines before they turn up to work, Bill Nye has said. And please note I'm saying Bill Nye, N-I-G-H-Y, and not Bill Nye, N-Y-E. Because that's Bill Nye, the science guy. This is Bill Nye, who is a world-renowned actor. Love is all a oh, fuck, wank, bugger, shitting, ass, head, and hole. Who's best known for the Underworld movies and Pirates of the Caribbean, right? <laughs> well, I was going to lead off with Pirates of the Caribbean, but if you want to go to the Underworld movies, we can do that too. <laughs> uh, as he criticizes the, quote, discourtesy to their fellow professionals, end quote. Nye, the BAFTA-winning actor, said it, is, said it had become fashionable for film and theater actors to deliberately refuse to learn their lines ahead of time, mistakenly believing it would improve their performance. Saying actors must refocus their attention on preparing properly, Nye argued the trend had been propagated by those who simply, quote, don't want to do their homework, end quote. Uh, the actor, 67, uh, also... Let's see here. Uh, 
gave advice to young actors saying, quote, if you're doing anything, whether it's a play or a film, learn every single word that you have to say backwards, forwards, and sideways before you go into a rehearsal room and before you go on a film set. That might sound like an obvious thing, but it's not currently. There is a fashion for not knowing your lines. It's been invented by people who don't want to do their homework, even as a creative choice. You will not become imprisoned by intonations, and therefore it's a discourtesy to your fellow professionals. It's a piece of bullshit from people who don't do their homework. That's an important thing to know. That's as important a thing I could possibly say. End quote. Uh, end all quotes there. So basically, he he's not necessarily dismissing method acting per se, um, but he is... He is also of the old guard, which is about learning those lines backwards and forwards, because the idea is that for him, learning the lines to the point that they are just, they are literally natural. It's not that you, it's not that you don't absorb them just to, so that you can go for rote memorization. It's so that they literally feel like spontaneous thought from the character you're seeing. That does actually work well with method because method literally has you absorbing the entirety of the character you portray. And while some forms of method acting would say that you're doing somewhat, you know, some, somewhat of an improvisational feature because, you know, well, as the character kind of grows and morphs, it turns into other things and evolves and ha might have something else to say, still having that basis for the lines that were written is just as much a respect to those who are learning the lines and maybe not using the method uh, that you are as it is to the movie or theater play itself. So, um, I don't know. I, 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 am, I am curious, Tim. What do you feel is the right way to go. Do you do you learn your lines or do you not learn your lines? I was I did theater acting for nine nine years, like nine full years of doing shows all the time. Of course, with doing theater, you learn your lines, and I think what's important for people to know is that method acting should only be done by very good actors, uh, like Meryl Streep. Many people would consider Meryl Streep to be one of the best method actresses. But Meryl Streep memorizes her lines. If she wants to change the lines or she feels compelled to change any of the lines because she is creating this character, she is becoming this character, she will have that conversation with the director and or even the, the screenwriter. The basis of every good film is its script. And... Regardless of what you think about the dialogue, about the writing, you are creating this character based on what you are reading on the page in front of you, especially if it's an original piece of work. So I think it is very important for them to know their lines. And if they feel compelled in any way to reshape or redo their lines completely, that should come afterwards. And I I get how people can say, like, I definitely understand people have a difficult time with memorizing lines. 
But then again, some of them are theater actors. Al Pacino, for example, has a problem memorizing lines, especially now. I went to see him in a Broadway show just two years ago, and it was awful. He kept forgetting his lines. He kept standing up and randomly walking behind a couch. Well, apparently, his lines were written or posted behind that couch, and he would go back there to, you know, for for a line check or a line reading or whatever. It shouldn't happen, but that type of thing happens. Regardless of who you are, and I feel confident in saying this not just because I started off in theater and actually memorizing an entire play. I mean, I was taught to not only memorize my lines, but memorizing all the lines that came before my lines. So you had a full understanding of the scene. But you're able to create so much more. And maybe even make the lines even better if you understand and know what is written in front of you. And that's my long about way of saying that I agree with Bill Nye. Love is all a oh, fuck wank bugger shitting ass head and hole. And again, that is probably, I mean, it, it very well could be the way I was groomed in theater working on the stage. But then again, it seems to be the way that a lot of people do think who were not groomed on the stage, but are accomplished film actors. I know um, I spent a little bit of time in theater and stuff from the time I was about 14 till I was around 19. And I also would learn the whole play. And even like one time uh, I had a buddy of mine, my best friend at the time, and he ended up getting the lead in Brighton Beach Memoirs. And so we would run lines together um, because the people at the community theater also knew me and, you know, we were always doing projects and what have you. And, um, I literally learned the entirety of Brighton Beach memoirs, memoirs running lines with my friend. And even on opening night, my other friends who we were all sitting on the front row and they were like, Matt, you got to shut up <laughs> because I'm running the lines as I'm seeing everybody on stage. So, I mean, it is, it's like you said, it's, it's just ridiculously important to learn the lines. If, if nothing else for out of respect for the material so that you understand what it is that you're doing, should you decide to change it for some reason, hopefully with the blessing of the director. I think it's also obvious when somebody is a good actor, people know their lines and understand their lines because I get that impression from somebody like Dom Hall Gleason. We see him, or Eddie uh, Eddie Redmayne, we see them both in so many movies, especially Don Hong Gleason. We've talked about it a couple times on the show already. He's in everything. He's been in everything for the past couple years. But you get the sense that he understands the written material. And I, I think I just don't want to see that go away. I don't think it'll fully ever go away, but I, I think that could be one of the reasons why we're not we don't have... Especially one of the reasons why we don't have compelling comedy, because a lot of comedy movies are just sporadic, spur-of-the-moment improvisations and and quip-filled, opposed to well-written, thought-out comedic dialogue. In scene. (laughs) Well, hang on, let me go run behind the couch. All right, um, I 
thought you would appreciate that callback to your Al Pacino. I did. I, I was I was laughing. I, I was oh, I was taking okay, a sip sorry. of my brewski and uh, indeed. All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of the news. Next week, um, we you know what? We don't even know what our bonus segment is. Hey, how about I got I got one? How about I'm the only one who liked it? Tim, you want to do some I'm the only one who liked it? We haven't done that for a while. Yeah, let's do some I'm the only one who liked it. All right, next week, I'm the only one who liked is the bonus segment. And without further ado, I believe it's time for the movies, is it not, sir? Let's get into the horror movies. Matt, you haven't done a laugh yet. You're, you're, you're cackling horrific Halloween laugh with thunder oh. and lightning. <laughs> well, in that case... <laughs> It's the movie. <laughs> this week's movies are The Old Dark House, Night of the Demon, and The Innocents. <laughs> so, where do you want to start? How about we start with the older flick, which would be The Old Dark House. You happen to have any idea where we are? I haven't the least idea in the world. We've come to ask for shelter. We've lost our way. What is it? What do they want? They want to know if they can stay here for the night. My sister Rachel had this room once. She died when she was 21. Bless our Lord, this is the house they'll approve a whole mankind. Amen. Whose life? I suppose it's a store. Here we are, six people sitting around. What do we know about each other? Not have. I've got a funny feeling. Something dreadful might happen to us. You don't seem to understand. We may be cut off, shut up in this house. There's a madman upstairs. You shouldn't have come here. You see, it may be dangerous. Oh, Philip, not something else horrible. You're afraid, aren't you? You don't believe in God, and yet you're afraid to die. Yes, and just to be on the uh, safe side here, because there are multiple versions of all these movies, even when they don't necessarily relate to direct remakes. Old Dark House is from 1932, Night of the Demon is going to be from 1957, and The Innocents will be from 1961. 1932 pre-code horror comedy is directed by James Whale and stars Boris Karloff. film is actually based on the novel Benighted uh, from 1927 by J.B. Priestley. You know what? I have got a wonderful article from The Village Voice. And this article perfectly surmises both this movie and what I love about this movie. I am going to branch off after I'm done with the article to tell you kind of what I don't like about the film. Um, but long story short, all, all my reviews tonight are going to be good. So this is a, this is a great, this is a great week for Halloween movies, uh, in general. All right. So villagevoice.com by way of Alan Scherstuhl. Long lost horror film, The Old Dark House stands as one of the great universal fright flicks. And here we go. It's a very short article. I will be reading it in its entirety. 
Even if it hadn't been essentially lost, James Whale's The Old Dark House from 1932 wouldn't have ever fit exactly on the Mount Rushmore of Universal's horror greats. Frankenstein, that old corpse's wife, the Wolfman, Dracula, and, since actually you can't see him, we can get away with the five faces on this mountain, the Invisible Man. Whale directed the debut of the studio's classic version of three of those characters, all but the Wolfman and Dracula, and his impeccably atmospheric house, shot one year after Frankenstein and three years before The Bride Thereof, stands as another example of his and Universal's 1930s streak of mining from horror lore an ideal essence. There's no perfect monster in house, but there is a perfect haunted house. One where the lights won't stay on, the stairways creak, a madman lurks, and a whimpering comes from behind a padlocked door. The film, now sparkling, res- sparklingly restored and enjoying a release from the Cohen Media Group, is going to be trapped in a... Uh, is to being trapped in a scary house what Frankenstein is to deranged scientists playing God. It's the movie's pure headwaters of the very idea. Whale's film simultaneously parodies and establishes generic cliché opening with what Snoopy would call a dark and stormy night, with travelers who muck along through mud and flood until they at last find shelter in a grand heap of a mansion, its walls and gables and turrets black in the rain. Inside, they meet a mute man-mountain, Boris Karloff, uh, Morgan, who drinks too much and then chases the heroine, Gloria Stewart, around the dining room table, a lumbering and murderous harpo. Eva Moore plays a wild-eyed, tousle-haired fanatic who lives in the house and warns the newcomers that there are no beds to be had. Ernest uh, Thysiger, uh, as the home's polite host, of course invites the travelers to, to a feast served by Morgan, at which everyone will make slightly strained small talk, and Stuart's character will attend in a smashing slip of a gown, as one does when scared from one's wits. Wales Film's amused logic encourages us to just go with it. This tone has been foisted on the source material, J.B. Priestley's shell-shocked 1927 psychological horror novel, Benighted, as previously mentioned. Uh, A second batch of travelers soon arrive, led by a funny Charles Lawton, and before too long, love matches are being struck, and we're learning hints about the other characters in this shadowy manse. The patriarch, whose scene is a triumph of pre-code gender pretzeled confusion, and the one behind the locked door. What was that noise? Was it Morgan? Yes. Morgan is a savage. I, uh, I must apologize. But we have to keep him here. You shouldn't have come here. Meanwhile, Silent Morgan begins his rampage, and those lights go out, necessitating the deliciously excruciating scenes of characters picking their way up staircases that haunted house films still depend on, right up to Mother... Karloff's Morgan, I fear, is not one of the great villains, but I confess to being fascinated by the bearded fiend's bald lustiness. There's nothing ambiguous about what he wants to do once he gets his hands on the women who flee him. Whale rings potent suspense out of a venturing into the shadows, and his technique still impresses. The camera glides forward into the vaulted bedchamber of the mysterious patriarch, casting the audience in the role of explorers, daring us to look away from whatever lies ahead. Several scares come from rapid, jagged cutaways, ways the montage work briefly intense and disoriented disorienting 
That is the entire article. So as, and I agree with everything that is there. And really, this is where I come across because, um, you'll notice in the article, it does point out that Morgan is not really that great of a villain because despite the, despite the amazing, uh, content you find in this pre-code horror, which is why they're getting away with, you know, some weird gender issues, which is why you can see, um, the amount of lust that's involved in the chase scenes and stuff. I mean, there's no question about the adult nature of what is happening to these people. Um, it's almost as if it's, Adult for adult's sake. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when the 10 year old gets away from mom and dad and decides to show off to his or her friends just exactly how much they've learned how to cuss or how they think that they can smoke or they can, you know, drink when they turn into teenagers or whatever, just, just because they can. And, even though it's pre-code, there's a lot of these things that happen throughout the movie. And yes, the makeup aspect of Karloff's performance is, again, spot on as always. But that's that's kind of where the amazingness and the subtleties end. Everything else, um, when they really turn on the gas, uh, often kind of goes overboard. It's kind of like they're... Uh, it's kind of like when you're shifting gears in a vehicle. Sometimes if you don't do it uh, as smoothly, you're going to almost redline your tack before you finally get the clutch engaged. And that happens more often than not in the film. It's still fantastic, and this is definitely a reason why I think pre-code shows the, the, the real grown-up nature that was stifled even though we still get some really great cinema post-code um, and through the 60s, I just really think that they were on to some stuff uh, pre-code as well. I give this movie four out of five stars. Really got to check it out. Um, and it is available on Blu-ray. I mean, completely restored, full high def. You'll love it. And I really think that you'll find... Um, a hidden gem in terms of being able to laugh while you're being a little bit scared. Bill's all right, really. Of course, I don't love him. And of course, he gives me money. Oh, not very much. Just enough to keep me going. You probably won't believe me, but Bill doesn't... He doesn't expect anything. Do you know what I mean by anything? Yes, I know what you mean by anything. He likes people to think he's ever so gay. I think he's in love with that little dead wife still. I'm sure he is. I suppose that's why he only wants me, well, for company. He likes to sit on my bed at night and boast to me about the things he's done during the day. What do you got there, Tim? This is a very good movie. Definitely far superior than the 1963 remake. The original version is definitely a comedy. Whereas in the remake, they go broader. And they venture more into the art of... The pratfall, I should say, which, you know, takes away from the eerie, moody atmosphere that really makes this movie what it is. Hell! What are you stopping for? I'm stopping for a rest. Really, Philip, you can't stop here. For pity's sake, I either go on or go back. 
You can't expect me to spend the night like a half round rat on a mountainside. It's better to stop and drive the car gently over a cliff, isn't it? Well, it won't help things, losing your temper. I've never been in a better temper in my life. I love driving a hundred miles through the dark, practically without headlights. I love the trickle of ice-cold water pouring down my neck. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. Would you like me to drive for a bit? Yes, I was expecting that. Right from the beginning, we've seen it all before. We've seen many movies that came many years later where there are a number of people in their car driving down a dirt road in the middle of a thunderstorm at night and they have no idea where they are. They either get stranded on the road or they end up making their way to a creepy old house. Regardless, they make their way to a creepy old house. And we've even seen this in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But in this film, the movie starts off and a couple by the name of Philip and Margaret gets their car stuck in the mud in the middle of nowhere on a cold, dark, and stormy black and white night. Eventually, they get their car going and are still lost. Oh, I shall be glad when we get to Shrewsbury. If we get to Shrewsbury. Do you happen to have any idea where we are? I haven't the least idea in the world. That's very comforting. We're quickly introduced to the character of Pendrel, who is sleeping in the back seat, or on the back seat, who pokes fun at the town of, I think it's Shrodeberry. You all right, Pendrel? Fine. Where are we? We don't know. We've lost our way. We're somewhere in the Welsh Mountains. It's half past nine, and I'm very sorry. Don't make it. It's ten to one. We don't see Shrewsbury tonight. Oh, well, never mind. Oh, Mr. Waverton, what shall I do? I wanted to go to Shrewsbury, but they took me on to crew. As a matter of fact, taking one thing with another, I'm not particularly sure that I want to go to Shrewsbury. As far as that goes, I don't particularly want to go anywhere. Something might happen here, but nothing ever happens in Shrewsbury. It is quite funny because throughout this movie, or at least through the opening moments of this movie, they openly make fun of, I believe it's the it's the Welch, right? They're, they're, they're making fun of the UK and, and England. I mean, there's even that moment when they're looking at this map and they have nowhere, they have no idea where they're at and the map's all wet. Let's look at a map or something. My own view is we're not on a map. Oh, you look, Philip. I can't see anything. It's all a stupid puddle. Seems to represent this country very well. Everything here is underwater. Oh, just drive on. We'll arrive somewhere sometime. Well, they give up trying to circumnavigate all that mud and the large rain puddles and trying to locate some shelter due to a landslide. They happen upon an old dark house, which is where we get the title, The Old Dark House. They knock on the door. Knock again, louder. I should have thought that was loud enough to wake the dead. That's an idea. What is? Wouldn't it be dramatic? Supposing the people inside were dead, all stretched out with the lights quietly burning about them. I'm sure it would be very amusing. And slowly, the door opens to reveal the bearded, mumbling Morgan, played by Boris Karloff. Good evening. We've come to ask for shelter. We've lost our way. We're absolutely cut off. 
Don't you understand? We can't go forward, we can't go back. The road's blocked on both sides, landslide. <laughs> Even Welsh ought not to sound like that. Morgan lets them in where they are soon greeted by Horace, who in this film is portrayed by Ernest Thiger. My name is Fim. Horace Fim. How do you do? I'm very sorry to break in on you like this. My name is Waverton. May I introduce my wife? How do you do? Fimbro. Charmed, I'm sure. How do you do? Horace has them sit down. I don't know if your man explained the situation to you. He did his best. I'm afraid I couldn't understand him. You see, Morgan is dumb. You know, they ask for shelter and a place to stay. Suddenly, the next femme, his sister, Rebecca Fem, portrayed here by Eva Moore, runs down the stairs, and she is quite different from Horace. She is not a older, lurch-like, creepy character. She is this craggly, cranky, loud woman. What do they say? What do they want? What are they doing here? What's all the fuss about? What? You must excuse my sister. She's a little deaf. In fact, sometimes quite deaf. They want to know if they can stay here for the night. Shelter. They've been caught in the storm. Of course they can't stay. We can't have them here. And then once the group explains to the two that they have nowhere else to go because of a landslide... Horace suddenly flips out. Did you hear what he said? There's a landslide and floods. The lake has burst its banks. We're trapped. We're trapped. We've got to go. You hear? We've got to go. You're afraid, Horace. You're afraid, aren't you? You don't believe in God, and yet you're afraid to die. You've seen his anger in the sky, and you've heard him in the night, and you're afraid. And it is because he is flipping out, you wonder, what is Horace afraid of? And then at the time, Rebecca, his sister's trying to comfort him and saying, oh, you remember the last time we had a storm and we were cut off from the outside world? Everything is fine. We were fine. Uh, uh, Morgan is here. Morgan's here and he'll take care of us. Morgan remembers. He means his house is safe because it's built on rock. You will have to stay here. The misfortune is yours, not ours. No big. I can't have beds. As my sister hints, there are, I'm afraid, no beds. And it is at this time when you begin to wonder, when you initially begin to wonder, what is going on here? And that is when the seeds are planted as to as to the possibilities of where this movie could end up. And throughout the movie, not only do you have your suspicions of Horace and Rebecca, you then have your suspicions of Morgan. And is he the monster? Because on the outside, he looks like the monster. He sounds like a monster. He appears to be violent like a monster. And then you're introduced to somebody else living upstairs. The old 102-year-old angry father. I forget exactly what you know how she describes her father. My father's still alive. He's upstairs. He's very old. Oh, is he? He's 102. That's very old, isn't it? He's a wicked, blasphemous old man. Not only does that plant the seeds and get things in motion, there are a lot of firsts in this movie that I couldn't imagine being an audience member at the time 
because I think it would have just completely engrossed me, and this might have been a movie that I would have paid to have seen over and over again. Because I can't, at least at the top of my head, I'm sure it's happened in silent films, because we all know that silent films ended up providing the ideas and paved the way for so many great talkies, influenced so many great talkies for years to come. I'm having a hard time thinking of another horror movie where we have your initial group of characters that you're, you know, the characters that you're introduced to. And then as the movie plays out, you get a little taste of the mystery and of the suspense. And then more characters are introduced. I'm sorry to barge in on you like this, but <laughs> needs must when the devil drives. <laughs> well, who's the owner here? My sister is the owner, Miss Femme. How do you do, Miss Femme? My name is Porterhouse. Sir William Porterhouse. And this lady is Miss Gladys Duquesne, a friend of mine. Glad to know you. Nice weather for ducks. Allow me to introduce you. This is Mrs. Waverton. How do you do? Mr. Penderall. How do you do, Sir William? And uh, Mr. Waverton. How do you do? Sir William Porterhouse. How do you know? And they have a backstory. You kind of wonder, should you believe their backstory or not? They raise a little bit of suspicion. And just little by little, the layers start to peel off. And we'll see this again, more so when we talk about The Innocents. It, it turns out to be a well-crafted film. Not only just because of the writing and the storytelling, and the directing even, but because technically it's fantastic. The cinematography is well done. The staging is well done. The editing is something that I must note. Blood and sin. Laughter and sin. Last for red and white. I was impressed with the editing and the camera movements, the way the frame shakes, and then how the movie utilizes distortion of faces via distorted-looking mirrors, and using that to play around with the idea that maybe characters are slightly losing their mind, or using that as a means of providing suspense and raising the stakes for certain characters. And the film overall does a good job keeping the audience guessing as to what's really going on. Should these guests be afraid of the mumbling Mute Morgan, or Horace, or Rebecca, or all three of them, or even neither of them? There are many cards left on the table, however, by the end of the movie, that the movie looks good, and it plays out in a very entertaining way, but it did leave me wanting more. And wishing that some of those extra cards that were left on the table had more resolution. As much as I want to give The Old Dark House a 4 out of 5, I almost forgot that, like movies at this time, many directors and many writers felt pressured by many of the audiences and the studios to include a budding romance in the film. And not only is there a budding romance, but it happens so quickly and it feels so forced that it takes away from the other aspects of the movie that deserved to be explored more so. So I'm really dead and gone to heaven. No, it's morning. And we've only just that tail behind. Morning? Yes. Cold light of day. Wasn't there something you were going to tell me in the cold light of day? Come to think of it, that was. 
Perkins, will you marry me? I, instead of giving it a four, which I want to give it a four out of five, like you, Matt, I'm going to have to give it a 3.5 out of five. That goes without saying it's still a great film, and it is now a part of my horror collection. Highly recommend this one. Like Matt had mentioned, a restored version was released this year. You can pick it up, I think, for 17 bucks or so. There's a couple uh, pretty good commentaries on it and some nice special features. A lot of history with this movie. And if you are a, a horror comedy fan, this is one that is well done. Because you have your Abbott and Costello meets the Wolfmans, the Mummies, your other comedy shtick duos that basically made a movie, a horror movie or scary movie around their comedy shtick. This one just happened to have been made by very talented people and performed and acted out by a very talented cast. So there is a lot going for this movie, and I highly, highly recommend it. Right on, right on. Okay, sir, where do you want to go from here? How about we go to 1957's Night of the Demon, or the U.S. version, which was called Curse of the Demon. True, true. Curse of the Demon for the U.S. But I like Night of the Demon. It just... Sounds so much more menacing. Well, so much was called the curse of yada 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 back in the day. I mean, that kind of seemed like why the U.S. wanted to title it Curse of the Demon because... That's fair. That's fair. All right. Well, here we go. Night, Night of the Demon is a 1957 British horror film directed by Jacques Tourneur, uh, starring Dana Andrews, Peggy Cummins, and Niall McGuinness. Uh, it's adapted from the M.R. James story, Casting the Runes, from 1911. And basically, the movie revolves around an American psychologist investigating a satanic cult suspected of more than one murder. It has been written since the beginning of time that evil supernatural creatures exist in a world of darkness. And it is also said man can call forth these powers of darkness, the demons of hell. It is the night of the demon. And tonight is the night that Dana Andrews, as a daring scientist, defies the mysterious murderous devil cult in a desperate battle against the demons of hell. Ah, why did you drop the poker? Red hot. Didn't you know? Oh, my boy, you're as pale as death. There was something in here. He has been chosen. I've been chosen for what? Today I found all the pages of my desk calendar torn out after October the 22nd. I know why. He died on the 22nd. John, what's the matter? The same thing happened to my desk calendar after the 28th. The frightened girl. The master of witchcraft. You will die, as I said, at 10 o'clock on the 28th of this month. Your time allowed is just three days from now. Skeptical? Don't make up your mind till you see this masterpiece of macabre magic. Because, after all, evil supernatural creatures really do exist. So, yeah, this is definitely a fantastic movie. Basically, what we have is a guy, uh, initially by the name of Professor Harrington, um, who is uh, visiting a rival, uh, Dr. Julian Carswell. And... uh, 
Carswell is basically suspected of Satanism and whatever, and and don't think of Church of Satan or anything like that. Uh, think you know your typical Satanism stuff with you know the pentagrams, uh, goats, and uh, you know all the kind of chants and stuff that are typically involved there. Um, we very quickly find that uh, Harrington is while Harrington is on to Carswell. He's trying to make a deal with Carswell that says, you know, it's like, look, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And yet something odd happens with this um with this flyer, if you will, a parchment as it were, uh basically flies away from his hand seemingly on its own. And shortly thereafter, Harrington dies. Now we come back um to the main protagonist if you will we have dr john holden played by dana andrews um who is a man that does not believe in the supernatural everything is grounded in reality and now he is going after uh carswell despite the fact that he wasn't there initially for carswell it's just through a series of events that finds him uh kind of on the hunt for carswell and as i like to say shenanigans ensue um will holden stumble across what makes carswell so dangerous is carswell really involved in what is dangerous will they surpass each other in their battle of wits who will survive the night of the demon um all right all in all this movie i found this movie to be absolutely spectacular now um, what makes the movie so good is that it takes a really unique twist on um, on the idea of what gives spells their power. Uh, this movie, of course, as you note, as you may have noticed, focuses around parchment. Uh, in the film, they use the term runes, and it's it's. It's not all about seances. And again, like I said, you know, don't, um, it's, it's really just the idea of everything that is, um, anti biblical and things of that nature. Things that really would focus on the idea of evil truly having power and how that power manifests itself in ways that people who are not, who do not subscribe to faith then try to explain these things. And that's where I think the movie has the greatest value, is that um, despite everything that goes on, you have to decide, are the characters, you know, metaphorically sticking their heads in the sand, both good and bad, um, or is there really more of a point to why you would choose to carry on the way that you would carry on? Is there hubris in moving forward in your own way despite what you know or what you think you know and it's these themes that make the movie uh so good for me not to mention they definitely go out of their way even for 1957 standards to really kind of 
put the gruesome out there for you and um, to, to really help your imagination build on that. I think the performances overall are spot on. The only thing uh, that I would say is that there are some things that you kind of find cliched, even for 1957 standards, um, and it kind of hurts the film a little bit, but not very much. All in all, this film, holy crap, you got to check this one out. I give this one 4.5 out of 5. Freaking awesome. And I really think that it, uh, what really clinched the 4.5 for me was the timing. It's only a 95-minute film, so it doesn't play on things to drag it out. It really kind of cuts to the quick, gets you where you need to go, and does it in, a, I think, a very inventive way, especially for 1957. Uh, some cliches aside, really going to enjoy this movie. 4.5 out of 5. Curse of the Demon, released in England as Night of the Demon in 1957, is popularly known as a B-horror movie. But it is actually regarded highly by true cult cinema lovers because of its subtlety and intellectual take on two opposing philosophies, which are, of course, the believers of the occult and the non-believers of the occult. One of the main reasons why most view this as a B-monster movie is due to all the monster or, or demon, you know, seeing the demon itself. You see this highly unconvincing and really bad movie monster only twice in the whole film, at the beginning and then at the end. It was, however, producer Hal E. Chester who included these specific moments or scenes without the full backing of writer Charles Bennett and director Jacques Tuner. French director, I should say, Jacques Tuner. If the name didn't give his Frenchness away. And I'm saying Jacques, but of course it's Jacques. <laughs> Both Charles Bennett and Jacques Tuner are skillful storytellers and know how to create true suspense and craft believable terror. Bennett wrote, of course, a number of Hitchcock films, such as The 39 Steps and The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Tuner imprinted his ability of crafting a sense of menace and spookiness on Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie. Tuner only wanted to show the demon twice in the entire film. Once at the beginning, in the form of the cloud chasing Dana Andrews through the woods, and again at the end, showing the demon itself in only four frames, throwing Dr. Carswell to the ground. He didn't want the audience to automatically know if there was a demon or, or not during their first viewing. He wanted people to go back and see the movie again because the only time you actually saw the demon in its full form was such was for such a short period of time. Again, only four frames he wanted to do that. Cult horror movie lovers also praise the film's use of light and shadows. Characters who might or had fallen victim to the demon are often surrounded by darkness. A prime example are the scenes that take place in the woods at night. Much of what lights those scenes is staged to come from things like flashlights and even car lights in certain shots or certain scenes, which draws the audience's eye from focusing on the frame in full, keeping the attention on the character and their isolation, which makes things even spookier because you don't know what's on 
the edges. You know, you don't know what's outside of that small shell of light or that shell of light that your eyes are focused on because you can't make out what could be in the back. That's what makes the Blair Witch Project spooky even today. Yeah, it's low budget. Yeah, it's shot for, you know, it's shot on shaky camera, but it utilizes that same technique of we're afraid of what we don't know. And one way to express that, to get that point across in film, is not showing you that. (laughs) Making sure you don't see what you don't know, you know, if that makes any sense. Uh, the cinematography, I must add, is done by Ted uh, Scalfi. But there's one thing in particular that I want to mention and in some way even defend. Dana Andrews' performance, his rigid performance of Dr. John Holden, because he has his very rigid way of delivering lines. You've seen the guy before. You hear him, you'll recognize him for sure. And... He plays the character a little cocky. He's very skeptical. He doesn't believe in any of this nonsense until he absolutely has to. Unlike other characters from 40s, 50s, horror suspense movies, in those movies I often wonder why these protagonists are either gullible as to the you know opposing nature within the story, and I wonder why... They're there other than just to keep the story moving, to keep these characters involved in that base-level suspense. I simply just don't care about characters like that. And I can compare the character of John Holden to, say, the characters in uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, it's a little bit different, because in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, he's... Nobody believes him. He knows what's going on, but nobody will believe him. Well, other people, they know what's going on, and, uh, and John Holden doesn't believe them. In a way, he gets a taste of what the occult is and what the occult can do, and once he becomes, I guess, bewitched or under the spell, there's a very logical reason as to why he then doesn't actually believe it. You know, why he just goes back to being skeptical. Joanna. Joanna. It's my uncle. Don't be foolish. Are you there, Joanna? Yes. These things are all fate. But it is my uncle. I know his voice. It's he's who hurt Mr. Meek. Got to... Got to tell Holden he can't fight it. It's too strong. He means we'll give up the investigation. This is crazy. Carswell has the key. He's translated the old book. The answer is there. No. Look. It's in the trees. It's coming. The demon. It's coming. No. That does it. Don't turn the light on. He's in a trance. Trance my eye. Maggie, I feel sick. You're not the only one. He's still alive, no thanks to you. Don't you know that to wake a medium out of a trance is to risk his life? But it was real. You must lose these things. Don't you understand? Oh, dear. But I tell you, it did sound like my uncle's voice. It was Mr. Meek doing voice impersonations. 
And your supposed friend, Mrs. Carswell, states the whole thing. She's looking out for her son's interests, not mine. The bad guy. Yes, Dr. Carswell. He's not portrayed as an obvious antagonist. His character is played more flamboyant and show-offy, very unassuming. And that makes John Holden's skepticism from beginning to, you know, when he's not skeptical anymore, more believable. Ah, why did you drop the poker? It's red hot. Which isn't, you know. Oh, my boy, you're as pale as death. There was something in here. Oh, nothing to worry you. Just a minor demon I set to protect the room. Nothing like the real thing when you meet it. It may have been minor, but it had claws and teeth. Oh, claws and teeth. Did you bite the man? Oh, shame. I don't keep you as a watch cat. I left the book in full sight for him. His name's Grimalkin. A very fashionable name for English cats in the Middle Ages. They were used in witchcraft, you know. It was not that cat. Oh, yes, it was. You must have awakened him. You shouldn't have, in the time of the full moon, when cats wander and witches dance. Oh, yes, they do dance. I've seen them. You really are crazy, aren't you? On the contrary, it's you who seem to be mildly unhinged. I mean, is breaking to my house at night to read a few of my scribbles an indication of sanity? I was talked into that. Oh, Miss Harrington, no doubt. That's quite horribly bright, young woman. I don't think she'd be flattered. At least her head isn't in the sand. She believes that she can see. She can. She believes that she's alive. She is. She believes that you'll die tomorrow night. You will. And that's what I like about this movie. That there is so many levels to it that actually work. But unlike The Old Dark House, all of these aspects work so much better together. And despite the really corny-looking demon character, everything else works. Because I know and I could tell what the writer and director were trying to achieve. So I give this one 4.75 out of 5. I thoroughly enjoy it. And uh, all of you guys out there, do check it out. Night of the Demon. Make sure you check out the 95-minute version, which is the UK release. Uh, the US release is significantly shorter, and it's not as nuanced, and the pacing is much quicker. So make sure you check out the 95-minute version. Night of the Demon. Check it out. All right. Well, then that leaves us with... The Innocence from 1961, which is a British supernatural gothic horror film uh, directed and produced by Jack Clayton. Stars Deborah Kerr, Michael Redgrave, and Megs Jenkins. This one is actually based on the novella The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. And this actually follows a governess who watches over two children and comes to fear that the house is haunted by ghosts and that the two children are being possessed. There has never been a ghost story created especially for the adult moviegoer until The Innocents. <laughs> Do they ever return to possess a living 20th Century Fox, which presented Deborah Carr in Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, and such outstanding motion picture immortals as Snake Pit, Gentleman's Agreement, and Peyton Place, now gives you The Innocence, based on the Henry James chiller of macabre evil. Brilliantly adapted for the screen by William Archibald and Truman Capote. Do they ever return to possess the living? The Innocence, produced and directed by Jack Clayton, the man who directed Room at the Top, turned into fearful reality by the magnificent performance of Miss Deborah Carr with Michael Redgrave as the uncle, co-starring Peter Wingard, Megs Jenkins, 
I saw him staring. Who, miss? The same man, the man on the tower. The tower? But now, just now, he was staring past me into the house as if he were hunting someone. Oh, what's he like, miss? Oh, he had dark, curling hair and the hardest, the coldest eyes. Is he... Would you say he was very handsome? Oh, yes, yes, handsome, handsome and obscene. <laughs> Do they ever return to possess a living? And when did you first see and hear of such things? Why, I made them up. Shall I tell you who taught them to you? I won't ever again, I promise. Shall I tell you who taught you the things you've done, the things you've said? Shall I tell you his name? Perhaps the most controversial concept in human relationships ever presented on the screen. With one of the world's great stars, from the man who directed Room at the Top, a new and adult motion picture experience. Do they, they, they ever return to possess the living? Yeah, so what we have here is uh, Miss Giddens, played by Deborah Kerr, who applies to be a governess. And basically, she's told, look, um, I kind of got these, uh, you know, kids. They're my nephew, you know, my niece and my nephew. And I really don't care. Um, I, you know, I don't want them to die or anything, but I really don't want to be burdened with them either. So here you go. And she's like, cool, I'm, I'm good with that. So then she kind of comes and meets the two kids, um, who are, um, Miles and Flora. And, um, you know, she, she seems to be getting along with Flora really well. Uh, she also has Mrs. Gross, who is played by Megs Jenkins, and that's the housekeeper, and everybody seems to be getting along. And then eventually, uh, Miles comes home, and things kind of start getting a little bit weird from there. Um, and when I mean weird, I mean, this is a, this is a young man who, uh, has no problems, uh, trying to hook up with the MILF, as it were. Uh, so shenanigans ensue. Miss Giddens thinks that there is definitely something more than meets the eye here in terms of haunting and possession and seeks to find the truth no matter the cost. Um, and as I always say, shenanigans ensue. Um, this movie, what I love most about this movie is that despite it taking its cues from, you know, from gothic horror and even to a certain extent, um, kind of a Victorian turn, um, of, you know, a turn of kind of a Victorian turn of plot, if you will. Um, they are the unabashed manner in which they approach the adult themes, especially when crossed over and presented through children, gives this the suspense and the thriller aspects that it really needs. Because the horror in and of itself kind of comes across as cliched, especially once you kind of get into, you know, what the actual haunting is supposed to be. So you are really left with only the strength of the performances along with the shot selection and really the cinematography. And again, these things all come together really, really well in this film. I was quite frankly blown away, um, by Martin Stevenson's, uh, Stevens performance, uh, who is Miles because he just, he gives you this earnest performance that comes across as 
just very, very creepy. And, and it should, and it should. And I think the idea, especially in terms of the way that Miles almost kind of pursues a romance, if you will, with Miss Giddens, you're, you're, that's kind of like, what the hell is going on? And you have to be really careful with that kind of stuff, especially, especially for its time. And that's where that gothic nature really shines. And again, just really, really fantastically done. Uh, but I really think that the idea behind the actual haunting itself and what's going into it, um, tends to be overplayed. And I, I don't, it's, it's not so much like I said cliched, but I definitely feel like it's overplayed, especially as it comes to a climax. But overall, I think it is just executed truly fantastically. And again, I give this one a 4.5 out of 5. And holy crap, we definitely did good this year for Halloween. Great classic horror movies all the way around. So, good job, Tim. Uh, 4.5 out of 5 for me. Bring us home, Tim. The Innocence is an absolutely fascinating film. Uh, though it's not absolutely perfect, it's incredibly close. Just the sheer amount of information in this movie, just the sheer amount of layers, I should say, that this movie has is incredibly impressive. And it's almost, it's nearly difficult to fully acknowledge and understand those layers in just one single viewing. I've seen this movie about six, seven times now, actually just sitting down and watching it, full undivided attention, a handful more times just having it on, but every time I still pick up on something new. These little clues and hints that the director leaves visually or within the dialogue, within the storytelling, within the blocking, um, there's just a lot to digest with this film. And unfortunately, I cannot go into too much detail now because we're running out of time with this episode. This is the one that I really wanted to talk about. And Matt, hopefully we can come back and we can do maybe a big retrospective of Deborah Kerr because she's in two of my favorite psychological dramatic picks. You got this one and you also have Black Narcissus. There's a lot to peel off layer-wise in Black Narcissus as well. Ever since seeing this movie for the first time, I've had this newfound love for and appreciation, I should say, for Deborah Kerr. Just absolutely phenomenal actress, a great range, and she knows how to take risks in the movies that she chose to be in. And now the first official thing I want to say about The Innocence is that it's directed by Jack Clayton, and Jack Clayton set out to make this film stand apart from the other horror movies that were coming out at that time. The popular horror flicks in that day, in the early 60s, late 50s, were the Hammer Horror movies. They were made in London, all very fine movies, but they are definitely gory and slightly sexier than what, ja uh, than what Clayton wanted to set out to achieve with The Innocents. He did not want the movie to be gory. He wanted to encompass a number of cinematic tools to achieve this. This difference in quality between this film and the popular films at that time. 
And in one of the departments, Clayton wanted to achieve this end, separating this film from the Hammer films at the time, was in the technical department. For example, the sound effects in the film, as well as moody and stylized lighting, and how the cinematographer handled the black and white cinematography. And also, unlike other films of the time, especially a movie that was distributed by 20th Century Fox, you know, the movie studio that has the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, you know, the big orchestrational music over its logo for its, you know, its logo music, the studio allowed Jack Clayton to forego that and open the screen for 45 whole seconds, just completely black, and a young girl's eerie hums is the only sense of presence that you have, uh, you know, for that entire 45 seconds. And it was with that 45 seconds, he was able to establish a tone, establish a feeling, and establish an atmosphere for this film that would carry on for the entire hour and 40 minute runtime. And that right off the bat definitely sets itself apart from the Hammer films. However, the movie is pretty racy for its time. I believe, Matt, you mentioned the uh, the kiss between Deborah Kerr and the young boy. The actor was, I think, 12 at the time. Uh, not only does she kiss him once, but she kisses him twice. It's incredibly racy, and it's fantastic because it works for this movie. They took a chance, and it worked. And going back to the technical, like, visual tricks and visual aspects of this film that sets it, that sets itself apart from any of the other horror or genre flicks that came out at the time is that the DP, the director of photography, the cinematographer, shot parts of the film so that it was dark on the edges. So when you're looking at the frame, you don't see a full frame. There was a lot of like bleeding shadows and bleeding darkness. So at times you weren't looking at a square. Instead, you were looking at, you know, what you would think is like a circle, a hole, a pit, you know, and especially as the movie gets darker and Deborah Kerr, Giddens, whether she's falling into madness or she's picking up on the weird paranormal ghostly activities more so and she's honing in on all that stuff, darkness begins to surround her more. And it was just absolutely fascinating and cool visual trickery. And those visual tricks were also in place to create ambiguity. For example... The visual tricks such as seeing the ghosts, whenever you do see the two ghosts, you know, often you see them like behind a window or you see them from afar, that creates ambiguity of whether or not these ghosts are actually real. You also see the ghosts only when Giddens sees them first to propose to the audience that these ghosts are a figment of her imagination. And this is, of course, the case until the end of the movie. And I'm not... God, there's so much I want to talk about, but I do not want to spoil it for you guys. But there's so much to talk about. I mean, man, I, I could go into the flashbacks that they were originally going to use, uh, that Clayton wanted to use uh, pertaining to the ghosts, showing the ghosts when they were still alive. And, and Harold Printer came back and told him, no, you can't show the ghosts because that takes away from the believability of the ghosts. You know, once you start justifying why the ghosts are there... There's a lot of room for error in actually thinking that 
they're not ghosts that really Deborah Kerr is being fucked with. And really how the movie was, the movie didn't want to give you that clear answer until the ending. I also liked how the movie is 99% contained. And contained in a way that, in setting, which becomes an important aspect of the film. Because the movie takes place mainly, almost entirely, at this old Victorian semi-Gothic home. Because the central story and the central character are all contained. Giddens, Miss Giddens, came from a, a sheltered home, a sheltered life. And this is really her first time, because really Deborah Kerr is older, the character is supposed to be younger, and she's coming to work for this family because she feels like it's it's her duty to do this, to help this guy out and to help the children out. And genuinely, she is happy to be there because she realized that, A, the house she's moving in is actually a beautiful home, and it's not the stereotypical, dingy, downtrodden, ghastly, lack-of-color cold castle. Instead, it's full of life and full of color. But really, once you start pulling back the layers, under that color is something menacing and something absolutely frightening. And that adds to, I don't want to necessarily say the terror of the film, but the psychological fuck that this movie can have, you know, as it goes on. So the movie being 99% contained is, I think, ultimately the backbone of the movie and the story itself. And now I'm looking at my notes. I'm looking at a lot of spoilery stuff that I would love to get into. And I, I just can't. I can't. I want to talk about the ending so much. And I want to talk about what really is going on. And Matt, I want to know what what you think. And I want to know if we're on the same page. So we should talk about this movie more in depth at a later date. A Deborah Kerr marathon. Why the fuck not? So I am walking away giving The Innocents a 4.75 out of 5. Honestly, the only negative criticism I have is that it felt like Deborah Kerr, Miss Giddens, goes through so much shit, so much trauma, and yet it takes her a while. It takes her most of the movie before working up to the point to where she starts going maniacal and freaking out. And I, you know, and it starts getting repetitive until, you know, I guess the shit hits the fan, I suppose. Go pick up the Criterion Blu-ray if you can. Most definitely worth it. So do go and check The Innocents out. All right, and I guess it's time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. Be bad. Be bad. Be bad of the big green dragon that sits on your doorstep. He eats little boys. Bobby duck tails and big fat snails. Be there. Take care. Be And I don't want to start bleeding all over the seats. We 
are, of course, the SLS Cast. You want to be uh, listening to us over at slscast.com. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can, of course, climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Boris Karloff, I get to say this. The monster was the best friend I ever had. Not only have yourself a safe and exciting Halloween, take care, cinephiles, and we will talk at you again next week. Tonight has been a magical night. We saw a scary monster changed into a beautiful, happy, and safe little princess. How about you? Will you follow the lead of the little princess and have a safe and super Halloween this year? Happy Halloween, everybody. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.